During World War II, on June 6, 1944, I was stationed in England. It was the day of Operation Overload, more commonly known as D-Day. I drove a truck of American soldiers from all the south of England down to the ports of Weymouth and Southampton. And there, they boarded ships on their way to the beaches of Normandy. They're about ready to take part in one of the most amazing and dangerous military operations ever undertaken. Some of the soldiers were riding me because I was driving the truck and they said, you're gonna stay in the relative safety of England while we put our lives at risk in France. But what could I do? That was my job. Many of those men never came back, but I lived. And that invasion changed the course of the war in the favor of the Allies. Now you say, well, Pastor, you weren't there. You were born in the 50s. But I was there. I was actually there, not personally, but genealogically. I was in the genes of my dad, whose story I just told. You see, this is a good example of the ancient ancestral representative principle, or for short, AARP. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a biblical principle, and we're going to see that in just a moment from the wonderful book of Hebrews. I want you to notice Hebrews chapter 6. We'll have it on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, where we left off last week. It said, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, this hope is in Jesus Christ, and our hope stabilizes us like an anchor stabilizes a ship both firm and steadfast, secure and sure. It enters, it enters into the sanctuary, the inner sanctuary, behind the curtain. Now, this is temple language. It's, it's talking about our hope going through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. By the way, what is our hope? It, the antecedent, is our hope that enters into the sanctuary. And verse 20 says, that's where the forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. So our hope is Christ, and our hope has entered into the Holy of Holies. Jesus has gone there on our behalf to represent our case before the Father based on his perfect life and his atoning death on the cross. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so it says that Jesus entered, and when he did, he displayed himself as a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. If you were to discuss who is maybe the most famous person in the Bible, or have a list of some of the most famous people of the Old Testament, I dare say the name of Melchizedek would probably not be mentioned. Because, as Pastor Doug mentioned, a mysterious individual. 
His name is found 11 times in the Bible. First in the story of Genesis 14, that Pastor Doug read, and then that famous messianic psalm, Psalm 110, where it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the rest of the occurrences are in the New Testament, all in the book of Hebrews, some nine times. In chapter 5, we are introduced to him. In chapter 6, as we read just a moment ago, he is reintroduced. But in chapter 7, Melchizedek is explained. His life is, um, his life story is shared. The significance of his story is revealed. Hebrews chapter 7 is all about this amazing man, Melchizedek. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. And I want to start out by just sharing a phrase uh, with you from verse 3 that says, Melchizedek is like the Son of God. That's why he's so significant. And that's why he is so important. Exceptional in his own right, but made even greater as an illustration or a type of Jesus Christ. I think it's the uh, New International Translation, the newest translation, that says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He resembles Jesus. It means he's, he's just like him in so many ways. Now, a picture is worth a thousand words. And sometimes theological concepts are difficult to grasp. So the Lord gives us in the Old Testament types, pictures that will point later to a truth. Melchizedek is the picture and Jesus is the point. Melchizedek is the photograph and Jesus is the focus and the fulfillment of everything that we find in this personage of Melchizedek. So the simple question this morning is how? How does Melchizedek resemble Jesus Christ? And the very first verse tells us he resembles Christ because he is a king. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, which is the story of Genesis 14. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. So if you take that apart, the name Melchizedek has as its uh, meaning and understanding king of righteousness. This is a reference to his character. You'll notice this much in the Old Testament that names are given based on character, character that you hope the individual lives up to, or sometimes the name is changed to describe that person's uh, achievements or lack thereof. But he is the king of righteousness. That's what the name Melchizedek means. And the scripture tells us that the title that is given to him, king of Salem, means king of peace. Now, Salem is most likely the ancient city, the ancient Canaanite city of Jebus, 
or Jerusalem. And the word Salem here is connected with the Hebrew word Shalom, which is peace. Now, may I remind you that the uh, text that we're studying in the book of Hebrews leans upon the Old Testament Greek translation, and uh, sometimes the wording may be slightly different, but we know it's inspired because here it is in the Word of God. And the point that is being clearly made is that he is a king of righteousness and he is a king of peace, both in his character and in his title. And what a beautiful thing it is when righteousness and peace come together. It's not natural. We are devoid of righteousness. And therefore, we are devoid of true peace. Whatever peace a human being might enjoy, it's transient. It's not deep. It's not substantial or significant because it lacks something that is the basis of true peace, which is being right with God. And when we rejected the Lord, we fell into sin, and immediately we are enemies of God. The conflict ensues, and the wicked are without peace. Ah, but here's the king of righteousness who reigns over the city of peace, and he brings them together. It's kind of like Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Or how about this one? Psalm 85 and verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, we are the ones who are to display the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now it's only in Jesus Christ that righteousness and peace can kiss. It's the only time they're brought together. For Christ, in his death, satisfies the justice of God and gives to us the righteousness of God so that we can have the peace of God forever. And in that way, Melchizedek resembles Jesus Christ. There's a second way, and you probably noticed it in verse 1. He is a priest. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, and he was priest of God Most High. Now, that always startles me. Whenever I read the story in Genesis, remember, we're back in the time of Abraham. And the story is that there were kings, two confederacies, one on the east side of the Jordan, one on the west side, and they came together fighting for land, and it was the king of Sodom who was involved in that battle. And Abraham had just split from his nephew in Genesis chapter 13. His nephew's name is Lot. And so Lot is living in Sodom. And when they're overrun by the Eastern Confederacy, uh, they are taken captive along with the goods, and they begin to go way up north, travel 100 miles on the run. And Abraham pulls together his own private army of 318 people. I mean, Abraham had some resources. And these were people he hired and people he trained, and they went after them 
and captured them. And in fact, if you go to Israel today, right by the ancient city of Dan, you will see a wall and a gate that is from the city that would have existed when Abraham rode by to rescue Lot. So he comes back. King of Sodom is very happy and thankful. He says, you can keep the goods, just give me the people. But a second king came out, the king of Salem, who was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham. And Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. And the story goes that Abraham didn't take any of the spoils from the king of Lot because he didn't want anyone to say that he became rich from the king of Lot. His riches came from God. I agree with the the scholar Don Hagner who says it is remarkable that the priesthood of a Canaanite king outside the stream of of salvation history could be recognized as legitimate. But right from the get-go, he is the priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, and he is also the servant of the creator of heaven and earth. He's legitimate. You know, it's amazing how God does his work of salvation in ways that we are unaware among people that maybe we've never heard of. And so here he comes. And Melchizedek resembles Jesus because he's a priest. Jesus Christ is also a priest. That's one of the focus, main points of the book of Hebrews. He's a high priest. Now you think about it, in the Old Testament economy, a king could not be a priest. Anyone who attempted to invade the priestly office would be judged by God. One of the best illustrations is from 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It's a story about King Uzziah, who was a powerful king, successful, good, one of the great kings of Judah. But the scripture says in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26 that when Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord. By the way, that's what pride always does. Pride always goes before a fall, whether you're a king or a commoner. He became unfaithful to the Lord and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Azariah, the priest, and 80 other courageous priests. I like that word courage. What is courage? To stand up to power and tell them the truth. They confronted King Uzziah. It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. This is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, those who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary. And the king, who wasn't used to anyone telling him, no, got angry. And as he began to to display his anger, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And for the rest of his life, he was a leper. Because you do not invade the sacred space without divine authority. Which again makes it so amazing that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God as well as being a king, just like Jesus. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. But indeed, Jesus Christ is pictured in Melchizedek. 
It is interesting to me that when you think about the priestly work of Melchizedek, that he wasn't taken from Aaron's line. That's what the scripture tells us. All the priests were Levitical priests, priests of the Levite line. That's the way it was set up. And the scripture tells us that Aaron was the first high priest. And even though they had many failures in this system, for centuries they served God, offering sacrifices at the tabernacle. And it was especially important that a Levitical priest knew his ancestry, that he somehow could prove that he was legitimate. You have a discussion of this in the book of Ezra as well as in the book of Nehemiah. They had to prove that they were of the genealogy of the line of Levite or they couldn't serve. But the author of Hebrews says, that system's done. (laughs) I don't think we can appreciate how difficult it is for the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. When everything about the old was true, the sacrifices, all God ordained, and now everything changes in the new covenant. It's not canceling out the old, it's fulfilling the old. But it's new wine with Jesus Christ. It's a new day, it's a new covenant, and that must have been very, very hard. Read the New Testament. It was extremely hard for believing Jews. Now, to add to the mystery, look at verse 3. Melchizedek is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days and end of life, And therefore, he's like the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God as he remains a priest forever. There's not a trace of human descent with this guy. He appears on the scene in Genesis 14, and then you don't hear anything more about him. Oh, he's mentioned in Psalms and Hebrews, but no more about his life. No parents, no birth, no death. Now, it's not because he didn't have them. It's simply because you can't find them. Unfortunately, a literal reading of verse 3 has caused some people to think that Melchizedek is a, is a pre-incarnate um, display of Christ, a Christophany. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls has one scroll named Melchizedek in which he is pictured as a great warrior, a heavenly deliverer, much like Michael the archangel who's also described in that same book. Now, Melchizedek is extraordinary, but he is not superhuman. He is great, but he is not God. He's a picture of the Son of God. And the point is this, the surprising silence of Scripture about someone who's both king and priest, where we don't have any understanding of his lineage. Well, the rabbinical way to teach in Midrash fashion, a little bit of allegory is to say that that points to Christ who didn't have beginning or ending. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, he did. He was born in Bethlehem and he died on Calvary. Yeah, but that wasn't the end of it, right? When did Jesus begin? The answer, never. Always has been has always lived. He just came, invaded earth as a baby. That was just a change of location. 
He left privileges when he came to earth, but he was still God the Son. And when he died on the cross, he was raised from the dead and he lives forevermore. Jesus has no beginning nor end. And in that way, at that one point, Melchizedek is a good picture. Melchizedek had a beginning and end. We just don't know what it was. And so he's this mysterious character. Bethlehem was not the beginning of Jesus and Calvary was not the end. He is a priest forever by the power of an indestructible life. But there's another way that he resembles Jesus. And it's simply this. He is great. Look at verse 4. Just think how great he was. Now, that's a reference to Melchizedek, but I love the phrase. Just think how great he was. By the way, this particular Greek word for great is only found one other time in the whole New Testament. It's at the end of Galatians chapter 6, where Paul says, look at what large letters I've written with my own hand. Look how large. It's combining not just the size, but calling your attention to it. And he's saying the same thing here. Look. Pause and consider, says the Amplified Bible. Consider how great this guy Melchizedek is. And here's the argument. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is... They're brothers, they're fellow Israelites, even though they're descended from Abraham. So they're the same descendants, they're all from Abraham, but because of the Levites' position as priests, the regular people have to give tithes to the holy people, or at least the people who are serving in that position. Verse 6, this man, however, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. And he blessed him who had the promises. Abraham had the promises of God, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And without a doubt, verse 7, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser person, having to do with status or rank, is blessed by the greater person, which means Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Say that to a Jew and be ready for an argument, at least in that day. He's not even from the tribe of Levi, no? Then how can he be a priest? He's a forever priest. Verse 8, in the one case, the tenth is collected by men, the Levites, who die. They're mortal. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. Now again, in Midrash fashion, the point is that Melchizedek doesn't live forever, but because you don't know when he was born and when he dies, you've got this declaration that he is always a priest. And at that one point, he's just like Jesus. Declared to be, by the scriptures, alive. Now, we'll 
later note in verse 16 and in verse 24 that indeed Jesus is a priest forever by the power of an endless life and therefore has a permanent priesthood because he indeed never dies. An illustration is not all that the point or focus is. The illustration just gives you a glimpse and points you toward. But what a great picture it is. So Melchizedek is quite a guy. He's the king, a righteous king of the city called Peace. He's a priest of the Most High God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he's greater than Abraham because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, let's go back to the ancient ancestral representative principle, which I said was biblical, right? Here it is. Look at verse 9. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor, the Greek word in the loins in the genes. Now again, it's an illustration. Levi wasn't there, but you could say in a matter of speaking that Levi paid the tenth to Melchizedek, making Melchizedek greater than the Levitical system because Levi was in Abraham. The point of this ancestral representative principle is that what Abraham did, Levi did, because Levi was in Abraham. Does that make sense? The Jews, by the way, all the Jews were in Abraham except Jesus. Jesus wasn't in Abraham. Why? Born of a virgin. How important is that? outside of the human race being divine enters the human race through a virgin but he's not of the seed of man how unique is that having no biological father this is the heart of the gospel and talks about the divinity of Jesus Christ, who is called here, verse 3, the Son of God. Melchizedek is like the Son. What a beautiful term that exquisitely brings together the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ and forms our Christology around this miracle of the God-man Christ Jesus. But wait, it gets better. Look at this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 22. As in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. If Levi did what Abraham did because he was in him, there is not just the ancestral principle, but there is a spiritual principle that when you are in someone, what they do is accrued to you. As in Adam, all die. Write down Romans chapter 5. One man sinned, and sin passed upon all men. To prove it, We all sin. 
Adam was our federal representative. He was our spiritual representative in the garden, and he blew it. And I know some of you are saying, I wish I would have been there. Wouldn't have happened to me. You know, you're like Lancelot and Camelot, you know. Had I been in the Garden of Eve, we'd be in Eden still, he sings. Yeah, yeah, right. You would have fallen. Probably sooner, probably harder. I would have. It's the mercy of God to let one, one, one person fall for the human race so that one person could die for the human race. And that one person is Jesus. In Adam, who's in Adam? Everyone. That's where you came from. What he did, you do. He sinned, you sin. He died, you die. That's the problem. But who's in Christ? All who believe. Not all who are in Adam are in Christ, but all who are in Christ are made alive because what Jesus does, we do. We get the benefit. He died on the cross. We died. He paid for our sin. Our sin is gone. He rose again. We are raised to newness of life. What Jesus does, we do. And our only hope for heaven is Jesus. Look how great he is. (laughs) Melchizedek was great. But Jesus is greater. Melchizedek is the sign. But Jesus is the son. And if the book of Hebrews says anything, it says this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I love the way it was put in a poem begun by Samuel Rutherford. Finished by Anne Cousin. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, for the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Look how great Jesus is. Let's pray. God of glory, we are amazed at your mercy to us, and we don't deserve it, but thank you. Thank you for dying in our place and expressing your great love, demonstrating how much you love, pursuing us in grace and drawing us to yourself. And Lord, the very fact that we are believers in you is purely of your mercy. But so often, Lord, our attention is drawn to other things and we begin to complicate arguments on a human level and forget that you are above all the fray. That you are the son of God most high, the creator of the ends of the earth. In fact, you created all things. That you are equal with the Father and sent on a mission, dangerous and amazing one of the most amazing ever undertaken. And the result is not the freedom of a country 
but the freedom of sinners from the bondage of sin and the penalty of hell and eternal life. Lord, right now, I pray, speak to people about your son and point people to Jesus so that they might believe. And may every believer learn to live with eyes lifted upward, focused on our great high priest who has gone into the sanctuary behind the curtain on our behalf and has atoned for our sin before the Father, our Savior, our Lord, our King, our Priest, our Prophet, our Friend. In whose name we pray, amen.